The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, the second chapter and the eighth verse. The eighth verse in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now here we come face to face with yet another cause of what we are describing in this series of Sunday morning sermons is spiritual depression. There is nothing which is quite so clear and must be obvious to us all by now as this fact that there is almost literally no end to the ways in which the enemy and adversary of our souls attacks us and uh, prepares the particular teaching or idea or point of view which he knows is most likely to succeed in our particular case. Here then we are face to face with yet another cause of trouble. The Apostle uh, makes it quite plain that he uh, writes this letter to the church at Colossae for that one reason only, that he's very concerned about them. He says in the first verse in this chapter, I would that he knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at uh, Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. The church at, uh, at Colossae had not come into being as the result of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. It was as the result of the preaching of uh, one of his followers and disciples called Epaphras. But the Apostle felt responsibility. He had sent uh, Epaphras out preaching, and as the result of his preaching in this place, a number of people had been converted and a church had been formed. And uh, they had at the first rejoiced greatly in their Christian salvation. But again, exactly as we saw last week in the case of the Galatians, after that first beginning, certain other teachers had visited the church and the district, and they had presented another doctrine. And the result of that was that a number of these people had been shaken in their faith, and divisions had been caused. That is why Paul says in the second verse, that his concern is that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And later on he uses the same sort of expression. He uh, prays that they may be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith as he have been taught and abounding therein. He wants them to maintain the rank, to stand solidly. And all that, of course, he offers as his prayer because the effect of this other teaching was that many of these people had been disturbed, they'd become unhappy, there were divisions amongst them, they were spending their time in arguments about these various things, and in the meantime they had lost their Christian joy. So the Apostle takes up this whole matter, and that is the central theme of this great and mighty epistle to the Colossians. In other words, if you like, we can say that its business is to treat 
of what is uh, described as the Colossian heresy. Now, what was that? Well, let's describe it in its actual terms first of all, before we begin to apply it. It is given uh, the rather imposing name and title of Gnosticism, which means that it boasted of a certain type of learning and knowledge and understanding. It was really a mixture. It was a, a, an accretion uh, of a number of different points of view. The technical term sometimes used for this is syncretism, a bringing together of various things, a sort of eclectic uh, religion uh, which uh, they had uh, worked up, uh, borrowing from various other schools of thought. But in its essence, these were its main characteristics. It was characterized first and foremost by intellectual speculation, speculation concerning truth. Coupled with that, there was a tendency to go back to Jewish legalism, to circumcision and so on. And in addition, there were certain ascetic practices. You notice the apostle refers to them at the end. They prohibited people to eat meats and uh, to drink various things, they, they were very rigorous in the kind of ascetic practices which they taught, touch not, taste not, handle not, observation of particular days, and so on. Now, it's very difficult to define it accurately, but those were at any rate the main elements in this Gnosticism, in this particular heresy. It was a sort of religion that was a kind of amalgam of those various things, this speculation, this tendency to observe certain Jewish practices and then this strict uh, humbling of the body and uh, denying of the body and uh, uh, sacrifice, as it were, of the body and its natural desires in various respects. Uh, with regard to their speculation, the main themes that they were interested in were these. The origin of the world, the origin of evil, and a belief that matter itself is essentially evil. Those were the things about which they speculated. What was the origin of the world? Where had it come from? Uh, where was the origin of evil? They recognized there was evil in the world, but the question is, where did it come from? And it is at that point, you see, that they introduced these angels. You notice that in this second chapter, the apostle talks about worshiping of angels, well, that was a part of their theory, their speculation to explain the origin of evil. They said that first of all there was God and then he'd created a number of angels and they went down a scale in importance until you came across an angel who was evil and he introduced evil. So they had all these gradations of angels between men and God. In other words, there can be very little doubt but that this kind of new religion that was tending to become popular in the church at Colossae was a curious mixture of the old Jewish religion and the various so-called mystery religions that were very popular in the ancient world. A country like Greece had many of them. You remember the temples to the various gods. It was partly a sort of paganism and the worshipping of gods and of idols but with many elaborate practices and sacrifices, they're generally called mystery religions with a strong mystical element. Well, now, all that, I say, was joined up to that ancient Judaism and with this extreme 
rigorism and asceticism in the way in which they lived. They certainly on the surface seemed to be very good and very devout people. They uh, were very strict in their diet and in many of their practices. And they looked at first sight as if they were unusually holy people. And yet you notice that the Apostle Paul is alarmed about the whole situation. And he writes his letter in order to save the church at Colossae from this terrible disaster that would overcome them if they once became subjected to this kind of teaching. Now, it is very interesting to observe, isn't it, how the devil, when he counterfeits the Christian faith, always does it as nearly and as exactly as is possible and conceivable to the gospel itself. It is there we see the real subtlety of the devil. His counterfeit, the thing which he brings along in order to beguile us and to delude us, on the surface looks amazingly like the real gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as we've had occasion to emphasize many times, is something that takes up the whole men. It applies to the mind, it applies to the heart, and it applies to the will. You remember that great statement of Paul's in the, the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Romans in the 17th verse. He says, but God be thanked that he were the servants of sin, but he have obeyed, there's the will, from the heart, there's the heart, the form of sound words delivered to you. That's the doctrine that came to the mind. Well, now then, you see how the devil counterfeits that. He forms this new religion, yes, and there is an intellectual element in its speculation. It isn't the same as this, but it's like it. He also has a sort of vague sentimentalism, which you'll always find in this kind of religion, to appeal to the heart. And you see, he has this strict ethical uh, practice, uh, this moral rigorism, in order that he may make his appeal also to the will. You see, he doesn't do it with one truth that takes up the whole men. He has to have this amalgam, this mixture, this, um, this gathering, this syncretism, this eclectic idea in order that he may try to simulate and to repeat the true gospel. Well, now let us look at this particular problem. This is, in particular, the danger that confronts the more intellectual kind of person. Here again is a point which is well worth observing. The devil, in his cleverness and in his subtlety, doesn't approach all people with the same thing. He has his divisions and his classifications of people. And there is nothing that he is quite so careful to observe as the difference between people who are intellectual by nature and those who are not very intellectual by nature. Now, last Sunday morning we were looking at the Galatians. They were not very intellectual. They were a simpler people, more emotional. So he doesn't take the Colossian heresy to the Galatians, no. What he does with them is he introduces something like that question of uh, circumcision with which we're dealing. What he does with them is, is to take out one matter and to put it at the center where it shouldn't be, a thing which, which may be quite all right in itself but should never be put in the center. Uh, Christ alone isn't enough. There must be something else in addition. They, there the danger was to make as essential something that is not essential. A fairly simple kind of heresy. But here in the case of the Colossians, you see, it isn't that. This is the peculiar heresy that is invented and designed 
for people who like to think and people who read a lot and people who really are concerned for the best and the highest in every branch and every department of life. And therefore, a man who once wrote a book on this epistle to the Colossians was, I think, very right when he gave it this title, Paul Amongst the Intellectuals. And that is most certainly the position of the church at Colossae. But it wasn't confined to this church. There is very definite evidence that the same thing obtained partly in the church at Corinth. Because in the 8th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says something like this. He says, knowledge puffeth up, charity edifieth. Obviously, the Corinthians were a bit subject to it. And it's quite clear that in some of the churches which were under the care of Timothy, the same thing was true. Because there, Paul refers to certain people who have made shipwreck of their faith because of science, knowledge, falsely so-called. In other words, uh, you can't read your New Testament without observing that there was a great fight going on in the early church with these various false teachings that came in from various directions to harass Christ's people. Indeed, the New Testament is a very argumentative book as the result of that. It's a book that's full of polemic. If you think of the early church as just an idyllic condition of a Christian people without any troubles or difficulties whatsoever, well, you've never read your New Testament truly. The Christian faith in the very first years had to fight for its very life. The church was besieged by these false teachings from every conceivable direction. And all these epistles were rarely written in order to meet with and to counteract such activities. We can sum it up really by putting it like this. The first difficulty Christianity had to meet with was the attack that came from Judaism, the old Jews' religion. That's the Galatian trouble. That was the trouble with the Hebrew Christians, very naturally. But when the fight was won as over against the Jews and Judaism, another terrible fight began which was even more dangerous. And it continued for a number of centuries. And that was the fight against Greek philosophy. You see, the gospel came to Europe, it came to Greece, and there it met at once Greek philosophy. Marvelous thought about life. And at once there was a danger and a tendency on the part of people to absorb a certain amount of that philosophy. They did it quite innocently, but they didn't always realize that in doing that they were denying their own faith. Now it was something like that, I say, that was taking place in Colossae. The Christian church had to fight Greek philosophy for three or four centuries. Some of the great early councils of the Christian church had to meet specifically to deal with these very difficulties. Speculation, human thought, imposing itself upon the gospel and thereby ruining the gospel very frequently. Now then, that is the kind of thing with which we are confronted. The Christian faith there in the ancient world was fighting on all fronts. Greek philosophy, these mystery religions, these forms of mysticism, that ancient tendency to absorb a certain amount of Judaism, and here she is fighting in the midst of it. And in a sense, this fight has continued ever since. 
It was a great fight in the Middle Ages, a fight that was very largely lost. For there is no question about it, the Roman Catholic Church is just a big and a great example of this very thing. She absorbed a great deal of paganism in the philosophical teachings. And it's a curious sort of mixture. It's the only true way, really, to understand the Roman Catholic Church with her various departments and her various sides, highly intellectual, highly emotional, with a great deal of ceremony and ritual, with a rigorism in certain departments. It's just a great amalgam and collection and mixture of various types of religions and of philosophies. But it isn't only confined to that. Wherever you get a tendency to mysticism, this danger always comes in. So you'll see it in quite a number of the Protestant mystics as well as the Roman Catholic mystics. But to come right up to date, you find it in the modern world. It's right round and about us in the cults. The various cults, I needn't mention them, I needn't name them, you're all familiar with them. They're there and they have their so-called churches and they often use the very Christian name itself. These other religions, these cults, they appeal to people. They seem to have so much to offer. And you'll find still the same characteristics, speculation, human thought, with a kind of strictness in living and a kind of sentimentalism. The same old mixture, using different labels and different terms. But uh, for me to make my description quite complete... While in the main, uh, this uh, problem is one that we have to confront in terms of the various cults that are being taught today, let us be quite frank and honest and admit that it is a danger that can afflict those of us who are actually within the church. The danger to speculation is always with us. Speculations about the second coming, speculations about life after death, does it go on forever or doesn't it? Conditional immortality. Is there such a thing as eternal punishment? Speculations about these things. Now, that, I suggest to you, can, unless we are very careful, have the same effect of drying up our spiritual lives, robbing us of our joy, in exactly the same way as these actual false religions and cults and modern substitutes for Christianity can do to us. Very well. There, then, is a picture of the position by which we are confronted as the early church was confronted. You see, my friends, these things don't change. The spiritual life remains always the same. The first Christians had the same truth as you and I have. They had to fight precisely the same things as we are fighting today. They had different names attached, but it was the same thing. Very well, how do we meet all this? Well, it seems to me the first thing is to examine the position. How, how can I know, says someone, whether I am in danger of uh, falling into this Colossian heresy? Well, the first thing is to notice certain general characteristics of the persons who do take up these things. Because there are certain things that always characterize them. And here are some of them. They always have a tendency to be what the scripture calls puffed up and superior. Did you notice it in verse 18? Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. 
I have already quoted to you what Paul says in the 8th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. Knowledge, he says, puffeth up. Charity edifieth, which means builds up. It's the difference, if you like, between a balloon and a building. This kind of knowledge always puffs a man up. But the true faith builds a man up solidly and establishes him in the faith. In other words, the followers of these cults and false religions always uh, give the impression of a kind of superiority. Uh, there is something, uh, to use again the technical term, esoteric about them. They have attained unto a knowledge that the vast majority of people lack. Uh, there is, in, uh, as a result of this, an element of self-satisfaction and of pride. You'll find it invariably. They are the people. They've arrived. They have the knowledge. They know. And there's no question about it. They're full of self-confidence and of self-satisfaction. Indeed, there is another very striking characteristic of such persons. They are always zealous and they are always most enthusiastic. Now, it's a very interesting uh, experiment to uh, work this out in practice. Think of people whom you know who belong to these various cults and false religions. Don't they always give you the impression that they're much more zealous and enthusiastic than you are? They're always talking about it, always advocating it, always trying to get you to go to their meetings. Their tremendous enthusiasm and zeal and activity. Now the scriptures teach us that that is always a characteristic of such people. It is one of the great errors, of course, that the devil always makes. He always overdoes what he's trying to do. And he produces, therefore, this carnal, excitable zeal. The apostle, of course, doesn't hesitate to use a term like delusion. I say this, he says, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Yes, it is a beguiling. It is a form of delusion. And the result of such a delusion always is uh, that uh, you get this excess, this overplus. It's always overdone somewhat. But let's be clear about these things. Oftentimes, this very enthusiasm is the thing that attracts innocent Christian people. They say, but look at those people. They can't be wrong. Look at their zeal. Look what they're prepared to sacrifice. Look at the time they give to it. You'll see them standing on the streets, holding up posters, giving out tracts, visiting from door to door. Christian people don't seem to do that, but look at them. Look at their zeal and their enthusiasm. This must be right, says the innocent Christian. The New Testament has a great deal to say about that particular thing. They're carried away. They have itching ears to start with, and then they're carried away by this false zeal. Well, there, I say, are some of the general characteristics. Self-satisfied, puffed up with this knowledge that they have, this enlightenment that they've received, and this tremendous enthusiasm and zeal. But having looked at it in general, let us try to test the teaching. What are the tests that we should apply to any teaching that offers itself to us? Now they come, I say, and they appeal to our minds, our understanding, they appeal to our desire to live a full and a joyful and a happy Christian life. And they come to us with all this plausibility, with all this subtlety, with all this beguiling, with all these enticing words that the Apostle speaks of. Now, how, how do we test them? What, what standards have we of judgment to apply to them? Well, here are some that are suggested here. The great question to ask always is this. What is the teaching based upon? 
Listen to verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That's the first test. Listen to the teaching, read the books, and then you say, well now, where does all this come from? Where does it derive? What is it based upon? Is it something that is based directly upon the New Testament teaching? Is it based upon the revelation of the Word of God? Can I see that it's derived at every point from scriptural teaching? Or is it just uh, something that uh, a man has evolved, something that men think, a kind of philosophy, uh, the working out of men's ideas and men's understanding? Now that is an absolutely fundamental test. You can apply it to any cult in the modern world or to any form of religion or religious teaching that offers itself to you. And I think you will find in every single case that there's very little scripture about it. There is very little of the teaching of Christ. Christ isn't in the center. He isn't essential. The whole thing seems to be there without him. They may vaguely link themselves onto him, but it isn't all derived from him. Now the characteristic of the faith, says Paul, is this that we hold the head from which the body by joints and bends having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. The characteristic of the Christian church and Christian teaching is that it is always in intimate and direct connection with the head which is Christ himself. There is nothing there without him. So if you can have your religion without Christ, if you say your religion leads to Christ, it's a denial of Christ. The Christian religion starts and ends with Christ. He's the head, he's the heart, he's the center. Without him there is nothing. So let's be very careful with this preliminary first test. Are we holding the head? Or is it the teachings of men? Is it after men? Is it after the tradition of men? Is it these enticing words of some fleshly mind that has worked out its theory and its idea? Oh, what a vital test this is. And let's never forget, I say again, that it's got to be applied not only with things that are outside the church, but even with regard to teachings within the church. Am I going too far? I wonder when I say this from this pulpit that the great trouble in the church for the last hundred years has been that philosophy has taken the place of theology. What I mean by that is this, theology is something that comes out of the Bible. It's extracting doctrines from the Bible, that's theology. What's the other? Well, the other is men uh, putting down on paper their thoughts about God, what he's like and what he ought to do, and about the Lord Jesus Christ, and trying to make the scriptures fit into their theory. That's philosophy. That's human speculation. So even though they may use biblical terms, let's make certain that the terms are coming out of the Bible and not that they're imposing their ideas upon the Bible. That's the first test. But the second test, and a very good one, is this. Does this other religion or teaching give us the impression that it's very much simpler than the New Testament? What I mean by that is this, that you will find invariably that these cults and other teachings are always in some shape or form a shortcut. And that's why they make their appeal. 
They give you the impression that you can arrive at perfection very quickly in one action. You've only got to do this and all is well. The biblical method, on the other hand, seems so slow. You're born a babe in Christ and you have your spiritual growing pains and you seem to go wrong and you have to struggle with these scriptures and try to understand them and try to put them into practice. It's a slow process, apparently. And these other things, it's so simple. It can be done at once, a shortcut to the very thing you wanted, happiness, joy, peace, and all the rest of it. So simple. It's a kind of shortcut. That is undoubtedly another very valuable and a very subtle test. The devil always, in some shape or form, gives himself and his system away. It's too good to be true, my friends. There is in the Christian life, as depicted in the New Testament, this kind of warfare, this struggle, the old and the new, the law within my members, sin within me, and the new men struggling and fighting. But all these others seem to do away with it. They can put you right so quickly. A shortcut. And hence its appeal, I say, to the unsuspecting. Hence the reason why it so easily entices and beguiles the young Christian, one who is new in the faith. Cut and dried, shortcut, such a quick result. It's a characteristic of the counterfeit invariably. Or I can put that perhaps in a slightly different form by my, in my third test, which I'd put like this. Let us always ask this question. Does the blessing promised and offered come from the adoption of some system or some method? That is again another characteristic of these false religions and these cults. It's perfectly clear in the case of these Colossians. They were being told, you see, that uh, all they had to do was this. They had to accept the speculation and then they had to refrain from eating certain types of foods, and then they had to adopt certain practices, and all was perfect. Now, it's always a characteristic of these teachings. In the case of mysticism, you see, you begin to travel along the mystic way, and that's all you've got to do. You follow these rules, you do what this manual of devotion tells you, and you'll get your result. Do this, that happens. The method is the thing, the system. And I say, therefore, that if we find in any teaching that its blessing is always based upon the adoption of a method or a system, we can be perfectly sure that it isn't New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity doesn't work like that. It hasn't these shortcuts. It hasn't this kind of patent remedy atmosphere concerning it. It is rather this amazing process of growth in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord as the result of the working of the Holy Spirit within us. But I end again with the test with which I began. You not only ask, I say, whether it is derived entirely from the Scripture, you again ask at the end, is Christ the head? Does it glorify him? And does it make it quite plain and clear that apart from him there is nothing? Very well, there are some of the tests that we apply. Well, now then, let me come to the practical application. How are we to avoid these things? What can we do to safeguard ourselves against these subtle, attractive, enticing teachings 
which are offering themselves to us today as they did to the first Christians. Now there are a number of people who seem to me at this point to go sadly astray. They say there's only one thing to do, that is refuse to think, and especially refuse to read. They say reading is dangerous. If you start reading, you begin to speculate, and then you lose everything. So they say don't read. The idea of being a simple Christian is that you read nothing but tracts or something like that. You never read a book. You know, the, the dangerous thing to do, they say, is to think. And knowledge is the dangerous thing. So you keep to that sort of simplicity in a negative sense. My dear friends, that isn't the New Testament answer. That isn't the answer of the Apostle Paul in this mighty epistle to the Colossians. What is it? It's this. What you need, says Paul is not less knowledge and understanding, it's more knowledge and understanding. Listen to him. His prayer is that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. In other words, the Apostle's prescription in this epistle is what you need, he says, is more knowledge. He says, these people are offering you some supposed knowledge. It isn't true knowledge. It's knowledge falsely so-called. It's after the rudiments of men. It's a fleshly kind of knowledge. You're interested in mystery, says Paul. You've been rather attracted by the fact that these have got a mysterious and a mystical element. Very well, says the Apostle, if that's what you want, I can give it you. Because... In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in him. You needn't go anywhere else. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And therefore the thing to do, says Paul, is to covet this greater knowledge, this true knowledge of Christ. You needn't go outside Christ, he says, it's all in Christ. Every intellectual advancement you need, all intellectual stimulation, it's all here, which being applied I can put you in this form. Are you attracted by these uh, philosophies about the origin of evil and about the origin of the world and about all these things? Uh, do those questions agitate your mind? Well, my friend, you need do nothing but read your Bible, it's all here. The origin of the world, the origin of men, Yes, as far as it can be understood, the origin of evil itself and all the other branches of knowledge that you desire. Is there somebody here feeling the need of a little intellectual exercise? I can tell you exactly what you have to do. Go home and study the epistle to the Colossians. It'll keep you going for many months. And when you're finished with that, turn to the Ephesians and some of the others intellectual understanding, the full apprehension and comprehension of God's truth. It's more knowledge we need, not less. It is people who are ignorant, who are always beguiled by false teachings. A man who really knows the full content of this, he rejects all others. He says, I have it all here. I don't need that. This is complete. I am complete in Christ. But very well, let me reduce that to a number of particular statements. How are we to safeguard ourselves against these things? Well, here are the rules which I try to apply to myself and which I say to the glory of God and of Christ. 
have not only helped me, but have kept me for thirty years. When I have read things which are enticing and attractive on the surface, and have been told with enthusiasm about them by other people who are anxious to help. Here are the tests. Keep Christ and your relationship to him central. The way to test any teaching or any view of life finally is this. Does it make you think better of Christ? Does it magnify him? Does it exalt him? You'll find with all these other things, my friends, that they don't do that. You'll be praising that teaching. They'll turn you upon yourself. You'll be talking about what's happened to you and how much better you are and how you've not done this and that for a number of years and so on. You'll be exalting yourself and the movement in some shape or form. Not Christ. This is the fundamental test, the first test, the last test. Any teaching that fails me to magnify his grace more than I've ever done is not of him. Every teaching by the Holy Spirit leads to Christ. Let me put it even like this. The teaching of the Holy Spirit doesn't even stop at the Holy Spirit. He shall glorify me, said Jesus Christ, and he always does. So if you find yourself stopping even at the Holy Spirit and his gifts, you can be sure that you are in danger of being deluded, my friends. The true work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to him, to reveal him, to make us worship him the more and magnify him the more. Oh, if your love for Christ isn't increasing by the teaching that you've espoused and are following, begin to doubt it. For here Christ is central, he's the all and in all. It is all in Christ. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are more and more amazed at him. You are closer to the head and ever more dependent upon him. So the second thing I say is this. Watch your heart. Watch your spirit. Are we tending to become proud and exalted? Are we tending to develop a spirit of superiority and of self-satisfaction? Do we tend to despise others? If so, it's nothing to do with Christ. What a terrible danger this is. God knows any man who's privileged to stand in a pulpit as I am Sunday by Sunday knows this danger. Knowledge of any type, unless we are careful, always has a tendency to puff up. And a man who reads and thinks and meditates and speaks is in this great danger. There's only one thing that I know of that is more dangerous than being a preacher in the sense that I am, and that is to be a lay preacher. Oh, how often have I seen it. Men who have been converted and who are living a beautiful Christian life, they start preaching. I'm saying this merely by way of illustration. They start preaching. And I notice a subtle change in them. They come to me and immediately I'm conscious of the fact that they're talking to me as one great preacher to another. <laughs> Men were simple and loving, but you see they've been preparing. And this is what I said in my sermon, they tell me. And I listen. How subtle it all is. Knowledge puffeth up. So let's watch our hearts, my friend. 
let us keep a careful eye upon our spirits. If there is any tendency whatsoever, I say, to become puffed up, crucify it at once. You're being led astray, you're being beguiled somehow or another by the devil. So it is essential we should keep a careful eye upon the heart and upon the spirit. Then another thing which I regard as of supreme importance is this. Beware of the lusts of the mind. I'm not talking about the lusts of the flesh this morning. The lusts of the mind. You notice Paul in writing to the Ephesians uh, talks about the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And in this particular connection, it is the lust of the mind that is extremely dangerous. What do I mean by that? I mean this. The mind of men, as the result of sin and the fall, has a lust to understand everything. That is why philosophy is always dangerous. That is why the last sin is pride of intellect. The human mind wants to be like God. That was how the devil tempted him in the garden, wasn't it? He shall be as God's. If you only do what I tell you, then you'll know as much as God. And we want to understand everything. This lust after full understanding. Beware of it. Beware of this lust after knowledge, qua knowledge. Beware of the tendency to speculate and to ask questions that should never be asked. I think we all know what I mean by that. There are so many Christian people I've known to be unhappy simply because they've tried to understand the origin of evil. This, I don't understand this. If God is perfect and God made the world, where's evil come from? And then they lose their joy. They've been speculating about something that they're never meant to understand. We are not meant to know that. And then they begin speculating about life after death. And you see, instead of taking the scriptural statements which talk about everlasting destruction and eternal death, they say, now it's inconceivable that a God of love should allow that. At that moment, they're speculating. They put the scripture aside. They say, I can't believe that God, the God I believe in, the moment you speak like that, you're speculating. That's philosophy. And it all arises from this lust of the mind. We want to understand and to comprehend everything with our pygmy, sinful little minds. And it can't be done, my friends. Beware of speculation. Beware of the lusts of the mind. In other words, we must learn to rest in faith. And to realize that in this life we walk by faith, not by sight. The older I get, the more I am defining faith like this. Faith means that I am content with what I'm told in the Bible and that I have ceased to desire to know what I'm not told in the Bible. And that ultimately leads to this, that I have stopped asking questions which I know are not answered in the Bible. God has chosen to reveal certain things to us. He has chosen equally not to reveal certain other things to us. And I say therefore that faith means this, that I am content with the revelation. I don't want to know what is not revealed. I stop asking questions about things that are not revealed. So give up arguing about the origin of evil. You'll never get at the answer. You'll know it in eternity. You'll never know it in this world. 
You will never know the ultimate truth about the final destiny of souls in the next world, in this life. It's no use talking about the Greek and what the Greek says and the eternal and so on. My dear friends, the scholars are on both sides. Stop speculating. And the same about the second coming. There are certain details which we do not know, we are not meant to know. Well, therefore, why speculate about them? If the scripture tells me not to be concerned about the times and seasons, why should I be trying to work out a timetable and an order of chronology from my morning newspaper? It's unscriptural, it's speculation. So whatever the form of teaching I say, let us learn to be content with faith. Let us be humble. Let us say, I don't know. Don't be ashamed to say you don't know. There are many things we don't know. Let's say so. We are not meant to understand everything as Christians, and we certainly do not understand. And my final word of advice is a very, very practical one. Balance your reading. We've heard a great deal in recent years about a balanced diet, and it's very important. Proteins, fats, carbohydrates, get the right balance, quite right. It's essential to physical health. It is equally essential in the realm of the mind and the intellect. Balance your reading. If I may give a personal word, I'd put it like this. When I'm trying to read a book on pure theology or on philosophy, I always read at the same time the biography of a saint. You see what I do? I read my philosophy, my theology in the morning. It's intellectual, and it has this fatal tendency to puff up. So I read in the afternoon or in the evening the simple account of the life of some saint of God with his humility, his love, his sympathy, his understanding, his holiness, his reproduction of the life of his blessed Lord and Master. And it counteracts the other danger. Balance your reading. Don't read always along the same line. Oh, I've seen it spoil the life of many a Christian. I've seen people lose their joy. Men who have become Christian and who have natural intellect and understanding, they read along one line only. And they go astray, they become puffed up, heady and high-minded, and they lose the vital thing. They haven't been balancing their reading. We must get to know ourselves and treat ourselves. And we must give ourselves the right type of intellectual diet. Balance your reading and balance your thought. Very well, it all comes back to this. What is your relationship to your blessed Lord? Do you feel that you're more his debtor than ever? Are you more than ever conscious of your sinfulness, your unworthiness, your weakness, your smallness? True teaching always brings us to that. None of self ultimately and all of him. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.